and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week, things get a little personal. My guest is Gemma Amore, whose brand new novel, Full Immersion, is out from Angry Robot Books today. It's her first trad-published book, but Gemma's written loads more indie titles to check out, as well as her stories on the No Sleep and the Shadows at the Door podcast. Full Immersion is a novel about virtual reality, trauma and experimental treatment and I'll say right off the bat that this episode contains extensive conversation about suicidal ideation, mental health issues and sexual violence. Don't worry, we're very very cheerful and charming but it is worth pointing that stuff out, especially because triggers and things of that nature take a special prominence in this episode because I was not able to read this book. It just freaked me out. I got about 50 pages in and thought, nope, can't do it. I explain why at length in the following conversation, so I won't go into it here, but because I broke my cardinal rule of always reading the book in advance, I couldn't ask Gemma all the piercing, close reading questions that I know you love. So instead I thought, what better opportunity to delve into the broader themes around the mental impact of horror creation and consumption. This is an epic conversation. We cover the autobiographical elements of Gemma's novel and how it helped her recovery. I lay bare my own neuroses and explain why the genre is not necessarily a safe space. And Gemma explains the dangerous reality of being a woman in the horror game. Now, that does sound a little sombre, but don't worry. There's also chat about the Uncanny Valley, Men in Black, Creepypasta, Black Mirror, as well as the pros and cons of pushing over racist statues. (laughs) This is the longest episode yet, and it's ironic considering it's about the one book I haven't read. I won't be doing this every week, don't worry, I'm not giving into self-indulgence, but it, it seemed too important a conversation to edit down or cut short. See what you think. Remember, you can support this show by subscribing to Talking Scared Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod and sign up for loads of bonus content. Many thanks, you gloriously generous people. But now, come with me to a cafe somewhere in the southwest of England, where a woman is writing to save her life. Let's talk scared. Well, hello, Gemma, and welcome to Talking Scared. How are you? I'm well, thank you very much. Good, I'm very glad to hear that. You are my first British guest since Emma Stonex all the way back in March. So Amazing. I'm quite delighted to have you, not in some weird Brexity way, but just because <laughs> <laughs> just because it's it's nice to have that shorthand sometimes. We've already mentioned Boris Johnson off air. We won't. We have. <laughs> we won't spoil the things with that. Um, it would be a very different podcast episode, I think, if we were chewing the fat about British politics at the moment. <laughs> yeah, that that would be quite the Patreon. Yeah, having having that shorthand can sometimes you know, be, be nice, but it, whether it helps or, or hinders the, the largely American audience, I don't know. I, I do think it will help today because this conversation promises to be a little bit different. Not not very different, but a little bit different and, and, and a lot more personal 
than the usual approach. And and listeners, that's my fault because, well, I haven't managed to read the book, but it's also a little bit your fault, Gemma, because you wrote a book <laughs> that, frankly, I found too scary to read. And that's a first <laughs> in two years of recording this show. I mean, it makes for good marketing, if nothing else. I, I, I yeah. couldn't actually read the book. It might be the first thing I put as a blurb on my um, on my webpage. <laughs> Nothing to do with the quality. I was I was hooked from page one, and that that is genuine. It's that's not my that's not my caveating bullshit. I was, uh, but for reasons we'll go into, just not the right time in my life. I get it. It's called Full Immersion, and it's out from Angry Robot Books today. Um, and and before I jump into why I was too chicken shit to read it and all of the conversation <laughs> around mental health that it opens up, can you tell us a little bit about your story? Sure. Um, interestingly, even though by the time this reaches bookshops, which is a really nice thing to be able to say at last, I've already published seven or eight books um, in various different forms, either through self-publishing or with indies. But interestingly, this was the first novel that I actually finished because finishing a novel requires a certain skill set I just didn't have up until, I guess, the last five, six years. And part of that was down to just my lifestyle. Having a career doesn't always leave a lot of energy left over for other creative pursuits. And, um, and part of it is just knowledge and skill as well. So Full Immersion was actually the first novel that I ever finished, finished. But in a nutshell, if I was to describe what it was kind of about, um, it's essentially an autobiography um, because the origins of the book were very much me just sitting down and, and free-flowing and writing about my experiences and things that have happened to me. And then eventually over time, I then wrapped a lot of fiction around it. So it's about a a woman with um, amnesia who has sort of large holes in her memory, who is deeply suicidal and has consistent intrusive thoughts about ending her life. And out of desperation, she reaches out to a, an experimental therapy program which it operates on a kind of virtual reality platform and she asks them to help her because she's desperate it's about her journey as she goes through the program basically um, and the different constructs that are built in order to help her in that process of recovery and healing um, and the different characters she meets but also as she sort of walks through the program how she not only starts to patch together holes in her memory but she also starts to sort of discover and realise her own latent potential in kind of surprising ways. So um, that's not a particularly succinct uh, <laughs> synopsis, but it's quite a difficult book. This is the first book that I've had difficulty really summarising is into like exactly what it is, um, because it, it deals with so many issues and things and devices and strands and it's it's a it's not like I can say yeah this is a haunted house story um because it's not <laughs> so, yeah. yeah yeah I get you so I I I'm happy to get into why the book disturbed me so much because I think you know we were joking about it. I think the fact that I find it so disturbing will appeal to a lot of people but that that risk making this episode about me far too early so let's put a pin in that for now you make it quite clear in your introduction to full immersion, which is a very moving thing to read, 
Um, you make it clear that it's a very personal story. And you just then said that it's a journal. It's an autobiography of, t- of, of a sort. Um, mm. Would you feel comfortable elaborating Sure. I mean, and this is the thing, most of my work is autobiographical, and I've always been very open about that. I think anybody that knows me and my body of work will, will know that I often write forwards where I come out and say, well, actually, this happened to me. And this is me Hmm. dealing with it by exploring it through fiction. Um, I often worry that people will start reading my books and the forewords to my books and think there's no way all this stuff can actually happen to one person. (laughs) (laughs) But um, I think it wasn't until very recently that I I think I realized that I actually had a reasonably rough ride throughout kind of my childhood and beyond. So I've always been of the opinion in that very British way that no, everything was fine. Yeah. And, and it's yeah. only as I sort of reached the age of 40 that I, I looked at a lot of what's happened to me over the years and gone, no, none of that was fine. So I'm very open about the fact that this book in particular is is pretty much a blow-by-blow autobiography <laughs> if you take out the kind of speculative elements like the, the virtual reality constructs and the things that happen to the main character magpie as she goes through. And, you know, there's a, a monster and lots of slime. You can put all that to one side, but the details of the grief and the trauma and the psychosis and all of that is pretty much like beat for beat what happened to me. So um, the book is about my experience with postnatal depression and suicidal ideation and my journey through, I guess, A, finally realising that something was was wrong with me, because often when you're in that headspace, you don't actually know you're as bad as you are as well, which is another thing. Mm. Um, When you finally realise, oh, God, okay, this behaviour and the things I'm doing, this isn't this isn't great. This isn't right. You sort of you're, you're still in denial, but then you have to go through a process of like, well, why do I feel like this? What's wrong with me? Um. And I struggled with very delayed postnatal depression, which didn't really hit me until my son was about two years old for a number of years before anybody really kind of figured out what the hell was was going on. Um, By which point I'd been through a lot of destructive behavioral patterns and I'd reached the kind of lowest of the low, you know, issues with addiction um, Mm -hmm. and repeated intrusive thoughts and just a a whole world of bad stuff. Um, But the... The the good part of that is finally figuring out what the problem actually was, then kind of put me on a path to being able to uh, come up with some solutions and, and a recovery journey. So I did various different forms of therapy, which feature very heavily. Thera- the, the idea of therapy in particular features very heavily in full immersion, my, my journey with therapy and my, the kind of things that I loved about it and the things that I found quite destructive. Uh, I, you know, played with various different medications over the year. And then I suppose the the biggest, the biggest thing and the biggest factor in my recovery was kind of becoming a full-time fiction writer. Because when I started writing Full Immersion in sort of perhaps 2018 or end of 2017, Mm. I'd not had anything published at all. I was nowhere and it wasn't until the very beginning of 2018 that I had a a story out with the no sleep podcast and things began to take off from there but I was nowhere at the Mm. time that I wrote full immersion um and so it's really interesting to me now that this is my traditional debut but I've been through such a journey already and now I'm a kind of full-time writer at the point at which this book is coming out um which for which I'm hugely fortunate on a daily basis because I think finally figuring out what you're supposed to be doing creatively and career-wise 
um, in this instance, it kind of saved my life. And I, I openly admit to people as well, this book was the start of that journey of writing and rediscovering writing and learning how to finish things. And, and uh, I, this book kind of saved my life, really. There's so much you've said that I just want to go, I get you, but I, I really don't want to make this about me. So I'm going to restrain myself from just... In a way, though, I don't think you should, because I think the whole point of what I'm trying to achieve with this book is to start dialogue, is to start discussion, particularly around issues when wherever motherhood is involved, women in particular, or mother figures in particular, caregivers are, are kind of expected to not talk about things. Um, there is a, a biological imperative towards that in, in the sense that like people who've been having babies have been having them for thousands and thousands of years. So just get on with it. And actually, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that the things that are still happening to us aren't wrong. And that the fact that nobody talks about this and there isn't much discourse and there is taboo surrounding postnatal issues isn't still wrong. And so the whole purpose I think of the book after I'd gone through various different versions of it I began to realize what I was doing was writing something a very difficult and challenging thing which I hope maybe encourages somebody to look at themselves and go well perhaps this is a conversation I need to have with my doctor or with my partner or maybe I should seek help or maybe do you know it's like I think the idea of us not wanting to make things about ourselves is very core and fundamental part of this novel in a way because the main character magpie is desperately ill but she doesn't have any room or time to focus on herself and how she feels because she has a child you know and there's many many ways in which English people in particular uh, because of the way we're brought up and the culture and the self-effacing thing that's a very Brit quality like we're not encouraged to dwell on our own feelings and emotions so we often feel like really apologetic for inserting ourselves into a, a conversation or a dialogue and it's like you know fuck that <laughs> if we all yeah. felt more comfortable talking about these things unapologetically then perhaps through talking about them we we find a little bit of solace or a bit of comfort or some allyship you know it's i, I encourage people to talk all the time completely agreed I am a little bit of a self-obsessed bastard, though, so there, there is that. <laughs> but, I mean, I will go as far as to say right at the start of this conversation that you succeeded with me because I don't want to alarm people, but this book has prompted a conversation between me and my wife where I have said, right, okay, I am now going to go back to therapy and sort some stuff out um, because I shouldn't be unable to read a fictional book because it freaks me out. You know, it really was a bit of an alarm call to me that yeah, I probably shouldn't be feeling quite this on edge. Um, but I'm just going to say right at the start, guys, I'm fine. And that's not like a, a British stiff up lip. I'm all right. I'm just aware that I have these weird thoughts sometimes that I want to sort. And I will mention them in this conversation, but this is not my cry for help by any means. No, but it's a, it's an incredibly... Like I got goosebumps hearing you say that you were going back to therapy because... So one of the reasons that the, the trigger warning discourse is so important for me in particular, and I get very cross when people, I was at a convention recently where one of the panellists kind of made a slightly off-colour remark about trigger warnings. And I, I very clearly stated, if I, and I have to prepare myself, but if I come across the word suicide without preparation, it mm. triggers intrusive thoughts. Yeah, And those intrusive thoughts then lead you down a path where you start to immerse yourself in, in an unhealthy uh, level of content surrounding that particular subject matter. So mm. for me, trigger warnings are vital because I can mentally prepare myself. And if I'm not prepared, 
then it it, it can have a, a kind of quite visceral reaction for me. Being able to identify that and then and then say out loud, actually, uh, I'm okay. You're not in any danger, but this is still an ongoing issue that I need some strategies to deal with and support some support with. Is an incredibly empowering thing to say, and and also it. it one of the big themes of the book is something that I talk about, which is kind of actualization, like the idea of saying something out loud and it happens. Mm. And that happens a lot in the novel, but it comes out in quite fantastical ways to do with the, the computer program and, and Magpie's abilities and how she sort of intertwines with the program to create new realities. The idea of kind of taking control of your own fate by saying, do you know what, I'm going to go back to therapy and I'm going to explore this a little bit more because I am not completely in control is uh, like so empowering to me to just be able to identify the problem when for so many years you haven't been able to, if that makes sense. It just makes perfect sense, yeah. Yeah, and I, I do wonder actually, kind of on, on, on the sort of link point to that, um, this book opens with a letter from Magpie to this experimental therapy organisation, which is just such a raw document. It, and I found it really quite moving. And, and I, I, yeah, you can feel the the agony in this letter. And I don't know at what point in your journey of recovery you started writing this book, but was any part of it written from the perspective of dreaming of a a therapeutic fix that perhaps yeah. doesn't yet exist. Yeah, yeah, massively. So the the point at which I started writing the book um, is not the point at which I wrote that letter, but the point at which I started writing the book in its bare bones was um, I ha- I was unemployed, so I was desperately unwell and it was starting to show in my, my job. I'd, I'd been working in business marketing for about 10 years. What's apparent to me now is that I obviously hated it, but at the time... I was always a very dedicated worker and I'd always give 110% of myself and I got uh, kind of fired from one job or fired in brackets, let go, as they like to say. And um, and then I got made redundant from another job immediately after. I was unemployed and I had a lot of time on my hands because my son then started school. So um, I was experimenting with different types of therapy, but I'd had a couple of rough example, rough um, experiences with therapy being not the right type. And I think it's difficult for American listeners to probably grasp this, but because a lot of our mental health care provision here is is based on NHS healthcare, which is free healthcare, it's a varying level of quality um, and expertise and experience. And so what tends to happen is if you go to your GP or your doctor and say, this doesn't feel right, my doctor was very good and very astute at picking up immediately that I'd had a particularly challenging birth and that I was struggling with some issues that might be related to that. As a result, he then referred me to CBT, to a CBT practitioner, so cognitive behavioural therapy. Um, but it was a limited number of sessions. It was only 10 sessions. And unfortunately, the, the practitioner, I think she wanted to help me so much that she, instead of sort of sticking to the CBT she started to kind of dig around in my head but the problem was is that she brought a lot of stuff up and then she didn't really know what to do with it and actually Mm -hmm. it did twice as much damage as it did help so I was extremely uh kind of injured by that experience um so at the point at which I was writing the book is is I very much knew I wanted that therapeutic experience I knew that I was really unwell 
and I knew that I I was kind of just drifting and a bit hopeless. I had absolutely no sense of identity whatsoever. You know, I had a child and I was a, a stay-at-home mum now, effectively, because my career had kind of stalled. You know, wasn't functioning in any way, shape or form as a particularly good wife or mother or general human being. I was just very rudderless. I was kind of drifting. And that's at the point in which I started to write. And so I would drop my son off at school and I would kind of walk down the road and go and sit in a cafe. I had enough in kind of back pay that I could afford to take a couple of coffees. And and I just got into the habit of writing every single day. And I was just writing an article about this actually for a website. What came out was very incoherent. It was literally just an idea dump. Um, but what became very apparent through me writing it was that I clearly still wanted help. I wanted to find the right treatment for me. I wanted to find the right fit. I really wanted to get better. Um, and that overriding sentiment only became, um, I only became aware of it as I was writing this novel, which is why I sort of say that it kind of saved my life because I think I realized how much I wanted to stay. Whereas before I'd been in a very bleak place where I'd kind of given up because you know, the idea of struggling for the rest of your life with significant mental health issues is actually extremely exhausting and it's quite a defeating concept. And you just mm -hmm. sometimes sit there and just think, well, why should I bother? You know, what's the point if this is going to be a battle for the rest of my life? But the act of writing this book and, and realizing how much I loved writing, even if it was about such stuff, you know, all this stuff, it, it it sort of reinvigorated me and get not gave me a sense of purpose because I already had that with my child, but it gave me a different perspective on hope. And I think that in itself then led me to go back to trying to find another therapist. So it all fed into each other so organically. Um, mm -hmm. This novel is so kind of enmeshed in like the current version of me today you know, I'll never, I'll never stop being grateful for the opportunity to actually bring it to the wider world. And the book was never written with the intention of being published either. Like, it was literally just me kind of administering self therapy in a way um, and that I wasn't getting anywhere else. And then, you know, I, I tinkered with it and tinkered with it and kept rewriting it. And then it wasn't until Angry Robot sort of came to me and said, have, you know, have you got any novel length projects? And I was like, well, actually, I do have this book, but I wasn't sure it was kind of in any fit state for an, another reader to relate to because it was all so deeply personal to me. It would be like somebody, a complete stranger, picking up my diary and just reading it and going, well, why am I reading this? You know, um, and at that point, I started to think about it structurally from a novel point of view, from a reader point of view, and think about kind of fictional constructs and different ways of taking what I'd done but making it accessible to other people um, and then that again led me to become much much more um, coherent and able to explain my own feelings and my own emotions in a way that I then continue to develop in therapy talking therapy and it, like I said everything just became enmeshed in this like recovery kind of rainbow <laughs> if that makes a different different colored strands of like tactics to make my brain feel better well, well you say don't you in the intro that you know the, the book saved your life yeah um and also that you know it, it it you hope that it would help your son in the future know you better yeah um so it is a 
a journey of discovery about the sound of things. And, you know, with that in mind, it feels almost trivial to ask, but where did these speculative elements come from? Is that just because you are a horror writer or did it feel like a necessary way to frame this? Well, partly. There's a range of influences in there. Um, I am extremely interested in the kind of fiction that reminds me of Black Mirror and the potential of technology. Yeah. Um, right. as, I started to, as I started to dive into virtual reality and, and I came across an article which I reference in the book, basically, about a study that had been carried out on a small group of kind of subjects uh, participants, I think you have to call them, and um, it was fascinating to me. So the idea was that they were they they had they'd they had either ingested or they'd had rubbed on their skin uh, chili powder, and the people who were just kind of sitting in a room and going, "Oh shit, there's chili powder on my arm," experienced much higher degrees of burning sensation on their skin and pain and discomfort than the people who had a similar amount of the stuff that they were exposed to or had ingested, I can't remember which, and they were in a virtual environment setting where they were watching um, a VR display of a kind of Arctic landscape, a cold, snowy, icy surroundings, and they didn't experience as much pain and discomfort and the burning sensations. And I was absolutely fascinated by that because I thought if virtual reality can affect a person's body and bodily responses in such a way, then think of what it could do applications-wise to your brain. So let's say you are having a panic attack, but in a virtual reality setting, you could then take yourself to a cool, calm, foresty place, which is what happens in the novel at, at one point. Um, mm -hmm. You could completely control your environment in a very immediate fashion. Um, and I've also been a, very fascinated with the idea of the potential of the human brain to kind of create new worlds and new realities, not just on the page in fiction or with artwork, but like in computer programs. But what would that look like if a program kind of merged with a person's consciousness and they could just actively control that, which is something that also happens throughout the novel as, as Magpie kind of grows in confidence um, and, and experiences her own potential. And then there are other speculative uh, elements I wanted to I wanted a way to represent the kind of the mental illness itself in a way which has been done often in other horror novels but for me if I think about the heaviness that I feel when I'm in that place everything just feels like kind of sludge or mud um which which to me is like a perfect analogy of how it feels to be highly depressed sometimes it feels like you're wading through mud you know you can't achieve or do anything um and then there's one final piece of imagery which is the character of silhouette a physical manifestation of magpie's kind of pain and intrusive thoughts mm. and i have to say I, I did borrow this from my my friend brandon boone who um kind of came up with the concept of this stick man um i think when he was exploring perhaps some of his own considerations you know and we spoke about it and i said would you mind if i borrowed that to put in this book because I think it actually perfectly represents what I'm trying to achieve visually with like how do you visually represent suffering in the, in that specific way so the influences came from kind of a wide variety of places I'm still very much driven by novels 
you know, like the Area X trilogy um, from yeah. Jeff Vandermeer. And there's a lot of that imagery still seeps into my own writing. Um, stories by Asimov. Just sometimes I don't often realize until I've rediscovered a novel that I'm like, oh, that's where I got this from. You know, <laughs> like yeah. nothing, is, nothing is ever truly original in this game. We all <laughs> we all borrow from other people, whether or not we're doing it consciously. Well, I get the Asimov thing because like Asimov made these beautifully compact and, and intricate thought experiments and, and, and full immersion from what I could tell, no pun intended works like a thought experiment what would happen if yeah so i mean at one point that so there's another character in the novel um who kind of follows magpie around in a kind of bit of a kind of uh what's the term i'm not a gamer is it virtual non non non-player character npc yeah yeah there we are um he's kind of like that but also not and it he sort of has a very therapist patient relationship with her and so at one point he actually gets Magpie to re-examine some aspects of her mental health issues by going through various different thought experiments kind of in the novel as well. Sometimes those are woven into like a new reality and sometimes they're just kind of symbolised for her. So mm. it's it's very difficult for me to explain without you having read it. It is kind of a giant thought experiment as well, but within an actual experiment because the program yes. that she's in is is an experimental kind of merging of therapeutic practices with software um, and, and hardware. It's interesting you mentioned Black Mirror, right? Because absolute point one that I made for this interview is that it reminded me in, in the best and worst ways, because dear Christ, did this thing fuck me up, but an episode <laughs> of Black Mirror called Playtest. Have you seen this one? Which one? I see, I've seen so many, but I need reminding of which one. Playtest is the one where the uh, the American dude agrees to beta test the virtual reality game. Is this where he falls in love with his best friend? Or is that the other one? No, no, no. It's where he's in like a haunted house and there's a huge spider thing chasing him round. Oh, no. I don't think I've seen oh, that one. Matt. I've seen the one with um, Anthony Mackie where he falls in love with his best friend that's, in a different kind of form. Um, that's Striking Vipers, that one. That's a cracking episode. Yeah, that is good. No, Playtest is a kind of minor one. I think most people would forget it existed. Okay. I won't say too much because it's brilliant and you, you will love it having written this book as well. It's basically about VR program which does terrible things to the user's mind and right okay the climax of it left me genuinely nauseated with horror right implication and vr has all this horror potential and it, and it feels mm. like you talking at least have a kind of utopian idea of what this stuff could do but to me particularly with zuckerberg yeah. in charge of it and the metaverse it feels like it's just this this landscape of of potential nightmares. It is, but like it's like anything, right? It's like any technological advancement. There are there are going to be frightening things with it. There's there's going to be your Skynet kind of base level of paranoia and fear towards allowing tech to kind of influence us more and more and more, right? But the way I look at it is like we can probably in the not too distant future, send nanobots into an arterial valve to widen it and stop somebody having a heart attack and prolong their life. You know, if if VR could be used in a comfort setting to help traumatise children to verbalise and talk and recover, 
like the 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 one of the characters in the book is uh, kind of um she's called the boss she doesn't have a name but she sort of oversees this program and she's a very conflicted character because she's a very driven career woman but she also sees the potential in the technology and the potential to actually help people the implications of good i think is something that gets lost in horror sometimes i find I've written it myself, so I totally get it. But I find horror that's completely bleak and hopeless. I can enjoy a certain amount of it, but I've been there. I've been bleak and hopeless. So I choose now to try and find the good in most things, if possible. And I think that hopefully that comes out in my work. Like characters for me are always ambiguous because because a bad person will always have some good qualities and vice versa. Technology can be scary, sure, but it can also be incredible and life-changing. Like the number of friends I've made online in the last five years through technological reasons who have now come into my life and are a per- permanent part of my life that I wouldn't have had the ability to have met 10, 20 years ago because you know whatsapp wasn't as much of a thing or yeah. you know what i mean like even even like where i am today in my career i often say this and i i stand by it if i had tried to publish a book 10 15 years ago and gone the traditional kind of querying agent you know sending off your manuscript to a, one of the bigger publishing houses if i'd gone that way i wouldn't have made it it's only because I was able to leverage the technology and to self-publish and use social media to kind of be my own champion and reach out to people and make connections and make friends. And I could format something myself without having to rely on somebody else to do it and typeset it for me. Like all of this technology that has come into my life recently, overwhelmingly, there have been downsides, sure, but overwhelmingly it's been a positive experience for me. So I try and like... I get the fear and I get the paranoia. Don't trust me. Like you only have to watch Netflix documentaries or, you know, there's a lot of that, but there's also a lot of good. There's an awful lot of good in tech. Um, and I think that gets lost sometimes in horror. Um, and and I think the potential is something that's just so fascinating to me. Like who knows where we're going to be in 10, 20 years time with all of this stuff? Who knows? Right? I, it's, it's I think it's a mark of pessimistic kind of, crisis fuel age we're living because you look at all right in the 50s you had like nuclear terrors you know films like them you know christ giant ants because of nuclear power stations and stuff like that but you always thought we'd have floating cars and they thought we'd have jetpacks and stuff like that and now it feels like yeah. everything is is frightening um i yeah. completely agree with you about technology in terms of creative output i mean I am. I have recently had conversations with Guillermo del Toro and Margaret Atwood because of Twitter. You know what I mean? So like right. that that could not have happened without exactly without Jack Daughter, whatever he's called. But specifically in relation to the VR thing, I think mm. the reason it it, it unnerves me, uh, and we can get into the crux of why your book unnerved me as well. It's the same, essentially the same thing, is that mm. I. Right, let's talk about it in terms of your book. Magpie, at the mm. start of this book at least, exists in this dreamlike state that she has herself opted into as this therapeutic tool. But when she's in there, she doesn't know she's in there. It's a little bit like Total Recall. You know, it's mm. the thing that she's bought into, but 
part and parcel of that is that her reality has shifted without her knowledge. Um, mm. And the VR is so sophisticated that that illusion can be can be upheld. And as somebody like me who has, well, basically derealization episodes where everything just feels a right. little bit off and a little bit strange. And yeah, yeah. And once that starts happening, it becomes a vicious circle because then you get these thoughts going like, what's wrong? What's weird? And your brain gets more sure. tired. And I find yeah. nothing, nothing more frightening than not having a stable kind of ontological place to stand mm. and say, right, these are the parameters of my reality and this I can cling to. And the thought of that mm. being unsettled or undermined is closest mm. to the most fundamental fear I have. And and that's what your book kind of plays with. And that's why I couldn't read it. Because at the minute, I'm having a lot of this mm. derealization stuff. And I just thought, no, sure. I, I don't need the intrusive thought that maybe I'm in a computer yeah, yeah. system. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and I'm, I'm with you on that in a way, because um, although I, I don't struggle with that now so much, and a lot of my intrusive thoughts were, were a lot more kind of prosaic in a sense, but the, the idea of sense of self mm-hmm. and who you are and where your place is in the world and what the world actually is around you, I found that explored really well in in obviously the matrix which we all kind of it's like um part of our lex lexicon now but also um inception i yeah. thought was that was done particularly well and it, there there is a particular moment where the the dream begins to realize you're in it and then all of the participants in the dream turn and they start looking at the the main characters mm-hmm. and they're all staring and i found that absolutely chilling um there isn't that doesn't come into play so much in in my novel because the cast of characters is very limited, but I did like playing with the idea of glitches. So the system often glitches because it's never encountered anything like Magpie's consciousness before, and it literally can't cope. Um, She kind of injects so much of herself into the program that the program's technical kind of capabilities get overloaded very quickly. I, I was obsessed with the idea of kind of being in an environment and just walking along and then everything just, shimmering and glitching um that happens a lot with my books in general I, I i'm very very interested with the nature of reality i don't know if you've read um white pines um or any of my other books but the central kind of premise linking most of my short stories together and white pines and a few other bits and pieces is that reality is thinner in certain places on the world so there are certain places you can go, you can walk across and you can just literally enter into a bubble of space in which reality is thinner. Um, and then it, you might even be able to bump up against other realities. Um, but those realities kind of grind together like tectonic plates mm-hmm. and everything becomes very warped and twisted. So I'm fascinated with like potential and what reality means and where we stand in that. And often that comes out in body horror. In this, I wanted to do it in a kind of more mental I guess thought experiment sort of way um but it's a very surreal experience like some do you know some that thing where you're kind of sometimes if you think too hard about walking you forget how to do it like you can't communicate your brain to your legs um it's it's almost a similar thing to that um and I get that I get how technology can do that there's that also that the other experience um Example I always use of, of where that completely terrifies me is the Polar Express with the Uncanny Valley kind of animation, <laughs> which is yeah. so terrible. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's so terrifying to me, that movie from start to finish, because it's, 
all the ingredients are there, right? Like there's a, there's a pair of eyes, there's a nose, there's a mouth, the, the face moves around, um, but there ain't nothing there that we can relate to as humans. <laughs> this, this is a complete tenuous sideways point here, but my favourite fact, or no, fact is the wrong word, my favourite thought about the Uncanny Valley, that I, I can't remember where I read this, I think it was a tweet, is that the, the fact that we have, like, globally, mm. transcultural, we have this idea that, you know, if something is close enough to human, but not quite yeah. close enough, it becomes frightening, yeah. that that implies there is something in our history that looked like us, but wasn't us. <laughs> I remember that. I remember seeing that tweet, like a, the idea of kind of doppelgangers, but they haven't quite got it right. Yeah, I know? think it's just like, the, it's the most fertile yeah. idea for a horror story. Isn't it brilliant? I mean, and Peel kind of explored it in Us, um, but I've I've never seen it really brought to screen in a way that completely fulfills how frightening I find that idea. Um, I'd love to one day. Yeah. Like, it, it, it'd be hard to do without it being performative. Mm. Um, yeah. But you're right. You're absolutely right. And and we don't fear much as humans, only other humans. Mm-hmm. So kind of the notion of like a golem or somebody impersonating a human. And I guess actually kind of older movies did, did deal with that a fair amount. Like um, Day of, is it Day of the Triffids or? Uh, oh, Body Snatchers. Um... The Body Snatchers, The Night of the Body Snatchers. You know, that kind of that kind of concept of like even Stepford Wives actually, which is a fantastic movie and a fantastic book. Um, It's all in there. It's all entrenched in our psyche. Like we fear ourselves. Yeah. But what versions of ourselves do we fear? It's like these stories of like supposed men in black that that they turn up and at your house and there's something about them. Like they might not have eyebrows or they're slightly too pale or they don't have, their lips are painted on. It's like the high strangeness that they are performing yeah. the role of a human what actually are they i mean yeah, that's a very creepy pasta approach to horror as well isn't yeah it? like that whole yeah. creepy pasta thing actually takes a very simple concept and turns it into something terrifying which mm-hmm. is my favorite kind of horror and it's something that trevor henderson does quite a lot in his artwork as well there'll be it'll be quite a normal kind of scene and then you'll just suddenly realize there's one thing that's so off about it it just sends chills through your bloodstream and it's yeah, it's it's the little details, right? The, the little things that should be there but aren't, and and it's probably a good reason, good idea you didn't read on because there is a a pivotal scene in in Full Immersion where at one point Magpie learns how to recreate memories, and um, for the purpose of exploring them to try and figure out, you know, why she feels the way she does, and she recreates a house party that she's been to, um, which is a house party I obviously went to when I was young. But there are parts of it that because her memory is patchy, she can't recreate in any detail. So often the faces of the people in the party, she can't recall. So they're just kind of smudges, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, or she'll be looking at a wall and it will change color or a door will appear and then disappear or there'll be a fridge or they won't. Or the carpet will kind of start melting and sliding off at an angle because she can't fix on the pattern. Um, That very much is a big part of the book why can't I remember these things? Because we choose not to. But then also that goes on to play with another thing that I kind of explore, which is something I I just read about called salience and salience bias. And salience means two things in relation to this book. On the one hand, it's about you noticing something that stands out more than the things surrounding it. Mm -hmm. So in this instance in the book, like a yellow ribbon tied to a tree in a forest. You look at the tree with the yellow ribbon around it. You don't look at the other trees. 
or a white marble in a jar full of blue marbles. The white marble stands out. So that's salience in one sense, but also in another sense, it's used in gaming and uh, video games and stuff to kind of help things move. I don't know. I need to go back and um, double check that um, because the actual mechanics of how VR and computing works, I'm a bit of a fraud. I still don't (laughs) fully understand that as much as I would like. So the point being is that the way we recall things is based on what our brains attach significance to and importance to. And that's why in this novel, Magpie kind of explores her own trauma through a series of items. And there's, there are objects and they're displayed in a gallery for her to kind of interact with. And the, the, the reasoning behind it is that each one of those significant objects will trigger a memory. And that in, in triggering that memory, she can kind of patch up the holes in her brain a little bit. So it, it's not in the same way that Inception kind of deals with consciousness and waking consciousness and understanding whether your dreams are being invaded or not. With this book, I wanted to explore memory and what our brains retain as important information and what we discard. Um, and there's a lot more I'd like to do in that area. I'd love to to write more about the idea of amnesia. Um, I was a huge fan of Oliver Sacks and the, the couple of books that he brought out, which detailed kind of patient case notes and, and interactions he'd had with various patients, things like proprioception, um, where your body's relation to your brain and whether like phantom limb syndrome and mm-hmm. things like that. There's a whole world of that stuff that I'm really keen to explore in, in much more detail because the more I read, the more I realize I don't know. You know, the brain is an enormously complex organ and it's just fascinating to me, like all the different ways in which we can learn about how we work, even though we're just literally like a bag of skin and bones and water and carbon and whatever. It's We're actually sophisticated computers ourselves. Yeah. And we don't understand the full potential of our own brains, not even like a third of how our brains work. So, I, want, yeah. I once read a, a quote, I can't remember, it might have been Sagan, I said, I don't know, who said that the, the, the human brain is the first time that the universe has been able to contemplate itself. Why? I I love that. I I find that fascinating. Yeah, that we know of, that we know of, right? It's really really (laughs) arrogant to assume that we're the only people kind of going through this introspection process because there's probably, in another cosmos, (laughs) there's probably a very sophisticated race of like brain beings somewhere else just looking down at us and like shaking their head. and just. There was also the thing that looked like (laughs) us and made us feel the uncanny valley as well. But um, (laughs) yeah. Maybe that's where Boris Johnson came from. Perhaps he's a, a, that would he was ousted a lot, from his it? home planet. That really would explain <laughs> some kind of like space slug that's just yeah, <laughs> it's just been dumped on our planet as waste because nobody else wanted it. This is where I, I lose a tranche of readers. I shouldn't get political. Apparently, writers aren't allowed to be political, so oh, I need to shut up. <laughs> how can you not be? Let, let's not go down that. I have actually got a question no. there on for you about this stuff because you're from Bristol and I want to know something. But we'll get to that shortly. Um, okay, take it back to broader principles we talked about this being a you know a thought experiment of a kind um about a a reflection on self a a journal a biography all of those things Mm. um do you think no i'll ask a different way how do you feel about this idea that i hear quoted all the time that horror is a safe space to play with fear are you on board with that or or not? 
Well, I mean, I, I think safe space is, uh, so, I mean, it's kind of hard to see how horror wouldn't incorporate fear as like one mm-hmm. of its main ingredients, right? Like that's the whole point. If you take the basic description, I guess, of what we consider horror, it's something that scares you. So by nature, you have to explore the idea of fear within that. But I think beyond that concept of fear, horror can be many, many things. Um, It can be sadness. It can be regret. It can be loss. It can be grief. um, It can be anger. It doesn't always have to be outright kind of, you know, all the the scary man with the blank eyes jumped out from behind the tree. Um, More than the idea of fear, what's important to me particularly is the potential to explore difficult themes and things that other genres often don't want to touch. Um, that has been kind of a long-standing thing in horror fiction, I think, since the uh, the kind of early iterations of it. You know, Mary Shelley wrote a book which was basically body horror and exploring the idea of kind mm. of being born in a way in which you are cast out of society. Nobody wants you because you're disgusting. You know, you're you're a thrown together monster made from all these revolting corpse pieces, and it's a it's an identity horror basically. Yeah, it's about acceptance yeah. and wanting to find a family and wanting to be loved. It's it's actually a very very clever story. Um, although I don't like how large parts of it are written, I I find the central theme of this kind of monster who was created against his will, um, from the remains of other men. And then set out into the world and abandoned by its creator. I find that the most powerful concept, right? Like, mm-hmm. and you know, um, I think Dracula and um, Jekyll and Hyde deal with similar themes of identity. I used to cite Charlotte Perkins Gilman quite a lot for her kind of treatment of postnatal depression, and I've since kind of learned a lot about some of her more radical ideologies. So I think I need to do a lot more reading around her before I continue to kind of cite her as a major influence because I don't think she was a particularly nice person. But the point being is that horror fiction has for for a very, very long period dealt with difficult themes and mental health is often one of them. Um, I have to say I'm not a fan of, of horror where mental health is the bad guy. Um, I find that a very reductionist view. Um, I think more and more but, people are waking up to that idea as well, aren't they? That, that yeah, isn't sure. You know, um, yeah, I know. So uh, the No Sleep podcast, for example, I think they they won't accept stories where the major twist is that the protagonist has a mental health like issue, um, which which I respect because it's it's a very common trope that's used yeah. quite often, and and often the person writing it doesn't know anything about that particular condition anyway, so. It just it doesn't really help the general discourse and and stigma stigma is always attached to mental health problems. Mm. So for me, the horror genre is not so much about fear, although I love exploring what scares us and I love exploring, you know, spooky and the different forms mm. of horror. For me, it's an opportunity to talk about things that I might not be able to talk about elsewhere. Right. Um, like you know, I, if I went to a publisher and kind of a straight in a straight fiction sense and said, do you want to take a book about a woman who's completely suicidal, who wants to live and wants to explore her, that through some weird computer program, but also there's some slime and a stick monster in it. Um, <laughs> I don't think anybody would bite, uh, but in a, in a horror context, that's kind of par for the course. So yeah, it's, it's a playground really for me in terms of, fuck it let's talk about some difficult things let's talk about see what's what i found interesting there is that when i asked you the question about fear and safe spaces the part that you took turn in its head was the fear part 
Hmm. The part that I have a a problem with is this. No, problem sounds like I've got some kind of like moral argument against it. I don't. It's a personal <laughs> a personal reaction to that statement. Is yeah. that when people just say it's safe space, it's safe because it's fictional, right? Yeah, that yeah. doesn't work for me because what's happened to me increasingly, and this is where I'm going to get personal. My anxiety has always used to be health anxiety. Um, mm. I, I've traced it back, I think, to certain things. I used to think I was dying all the time. It first happened when I was, mm-hmm. I was eight. And I thought I had meningitis, and from then it went on forever. Um, That's quite um, – it's also an increasingly common problem, and you're not alone in that. And I've got friends who have similar recurring thoughts about death and dying and bodily health. Um, right. And I think it's hard not to feel like that in this day and age at the moment anyway, given everything that's happened recently. Very much, but – that then got parked. And what happened when I was in the final throes of my, my PhD and going literally mental in my dad's shed, like right, writing like 14 hours a day and cracking colds in, in Daniel Lewis's <laughs> house of leaves. It, honestly, it was a, a whole thing. I started to have really intrusive thoughts that were kind of quite like magical thinking, sort mm-hmm. of supernatural ideas and stuff like that. And I think because I was so immersed in horror sure. i was thinking all day every day about horror with no break and it's left me now with this weird thing where i feel like i'm i've obviously got a massive interest in horror i've got mm. a growing podcast about horror mm-hmm. i love it but i also feel a pressure to exist in that cultural world in that milieu mm-hmm. for sure. this job you know and for my writing for journals and things like that mm-hmm. um and I increasingly feel like I'm making my way through this 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 landscape of this film and that book and, and mm-hmm. this creepypasta and this photo that someone's put on Twitter that's going to kill you if you look at it for too long and stuff. Mm-hmm. And more and more and more, it's those supernatural ideas that are getting in my head when I'm on a low ebb. Now, don't be wrong. I don't think it's real, right? I don't believe in ghosts. I don't believe in demons. I don't believe in right. anything like that. But it's an intrusive thought, so rationality doesn't really come into it. And it's also an insistent imagery, right? Once the imagery is in your head, it's kind of hard to uninstall. Exactly that. And I read Thomas Ulder Hervelt's uh, Echo earlier this year, and there's this mm. one concept in it that I don't want to talk about that just really fucked me up. It's almost like having a childlike brain where I can watch the film or read the book and I don't have that thing that I can lock it in and go, it's not real, it's a book, you know? Mm-hmm. So me what i'm kind of getting at is horror isn't a safe space because rather than it i have these prosaic fears in the real world which i don't have it's more that horror can give me the thing to worry about it's what it's that it puts it in my head i wonder whether there's an element with that so for me personally i'm not just a consumer right i don't just consume i create it yeah. So I'm making it and I'm painting the pictures or I'm writing mm-hmm. the words. The act of creation kind of gives me a bit of control over it, mm-hmm. over the imagery. I wonder whether there's something in perhaps you exploring it by writing your own thing or making your own thing that gives you that element of power back because it doesn't become such an insistent thought process. It's not an, it's not an externally driven thought process. Do you know what I mean? It's come from you and and in the act of like, putting it on paper or whatever you gain much more control over it I think um because for me mentally for me as well like I often I will be very gripped by imagery myself um not not to the point where I can't sort of 
it's difficult for me because my own intrusions and my own thought processes that I can't shake were all ideologies around suicide. So that was very difficult for me. And what that meant was that I then sought out media and TV shows and films and books that dealt with it. And then I ended up in this obsessive cycle of just consumption all the time. Yeah. But by writing about those things, it kind of broke that a little bit for me because I was writing it down. I guess that's why they recommend it a lot in therapy. Um, I've always written things down as well. Like I said before, right at the start, I've kept a diary since I was 12 years old. And there must have been a reason for that. Like I must have realized very early on, writing things down gives you control. The other thing I think as well is that with horror in particular, I often find certain brands of horror I just can't consume for, for large chunks of time. So the one that really fucked me up to the point where I thought, no, I'm not watching anything else like this for a long time, was the Scarlett Johansson one, uh, where she's an alien kind of driving oh, around. Um, in the skin. Is it in the skin? It's under Some... the skin, under, under the, the skin. skin. The score for that is incredible, by the mm. way. Um, but there's a, there's that particularly famous scene where she uh, feeds off of her father on a beach and mm-hmm. there's a small child that gets abandoned. That traumatized me so much. That imagery I could not shake uh, that I then went off and wrote a story about an abandoned child. And it kind of helped me like fold that and put that to bed. But then what I did was that I actively, cause I, I, I always want to engage with the genre as much as possible. What I find really helps me is like seeking, actively seeking out fun horror. Yes. <laughs> so, I've been through the entire back catalogue of Roger Corman movies. Like, um, I, I watch a lot of like '80s practical effects help me as well because it's very obvious that they're fake, and but they're yeah. still very enjoyable. Um, yeah. Things like Basket Case, where it's just so <laughs> absurd that it helps. Yeah. Um, yeah. But also things like um, was it Slither? Um, yes. With yeah. um, Thingy in it from Firefly. You know, it's like so absurd and so comedic that you you can still enjoy the genre, but in a very different way because you're very aware that it's pantomime and performance. Massively. So I think I think there's been a, there's definitely been an increased trend towards what I call very realistic horror more recently um, over the last ten years. You know, and quiet horror, I guess, is also another way of mm-hmm. describing it. Like stuff that really truly slowly sinks under your skin and it's about dread rather than rather than the jump scare yeah or, or rather than adrenaline almost it never gives you the payoff it doesn't but also it deals with what, what we said is people are increasingly using horror to, to to deal with difficult subject matters you know um again this um his house is a prime example of that it's oh what a film a, that is an incredible film and it's sort of an exploration of like not only the immigration kind of crisis but uh, but also like the dehumanization of it but also the guilt and and how far a person will go to survive um and it's like but there's only so many of those films you can watch in a week right without your brain kind of breaking a little bit um i think it's very important as a genre writer to also take a break from the genre quite often i do um i read a lot of sci-fi i read a lot of kind of uh, fantasy is kind of where I started reading really as a mm-hmm. teenager. Yeah. Um, I often just can't recently I've been on a Daphne du Maurier kick. Um, although she wrote a lot of horror centric stuff, 
it's more people relationships between people that was her bag she was yeah. an astonishingly astute observer of kind of human relationships yeah and, I, and i'm obsessed with things like that because i find it really accessible you know um well, although a couple of her short stories really fucked me up but <laughs> <laughs> i mean a few things that there one in terms of writing as a as a way of dealing with things definitely because i i have kind of weird kind of night terrors um hmm. and since i started the, the novel i've been trying to write since i've began this podcast i mean people are sick of hearing about it you, you mentioned never finishing a novel until this one i've got two mm. un, half written books sitting mm. just like throbbing on my laptop um mm-hmm. but one of those is about the th- this kind of like cross-cultural phenomenon of, of like you know um like the succubus, like the, the sleep demon that sits on your chest mm-hmm. and you, you wake up. And, and it used to really get, I used to think that was a horrible idea. Now I'm writing about it. I find it quite fun. Uh, so that definitely, yeah. that definitely does work. In terms of the mm-hmm. stuff that I can watch, you said like silly horror or like, you know, mm-hmm. slapstick horror. I can watch the most outrageous episodes of violence. Um, like I watched The Strangers the other day, again, for the, mm-hmm. for the umpteenth time whilst I was staying in a cabin in the middle of nowhere, me and my wife, <laughs> it doesn't bother me at all. I read um, Michael Seidlinger's Anybody Home, which, you know... I can't... Re- I love Michael to bits as well, and yeah. I've, I've, I will openly say this to you. I met him last year, and he's a lovely human being, but as a lone female... Well, not yeah. a lone female, but sometimes I'm alone in the house with my kid, and I can't read that. There's no way I can read that. It's... Um, Left me utterly unmoved. I loved it technically. Didn't scare yeah. me at all. It's it's this yeah. stuff about the supernatural. And I think it's because, I think it's because, but I've thought long and hard, I think it's because the supernatural, if you are in a non-rational state of mind, which mm-hmm. anxiety does, you know, it, it takes away yeah. that, that stability. It's very difficult to resolve something which is by default irrational. Because the rules are endless. You know, you can mm-hmm. always think of some new way to go, oh, yeah, but what if that? And what if this? And what if that? Mm. So when I'm feeling fine, like I am most of the time, once again, listeners, I'm okay. Um, <laughs> the minute I'm off, off kilter, I'm like, oh, no, because my worry is that I'm going to watch that. It's going to get in my head. I'm going to be thinking about two, two in the morning. Uh, yeah, I just, I get really twitchy, really do. I think it's good that you can identify that, though, because it means you can control how much of that stuff you do consume. And I think control is key. Um, I think in relate in horror in particular, you do have to be careful sometimes. I know some people can just sit and endlessly watch like Man Bites Dog or, mm. you know, every Saw movie in the franchise or without any like side effects or anything. But others of us are perhaps more sensitive um, you don't have to ingest every movie made or every book written. There's nothing like, you know, you, you said yourself and you're very open about it. I can't read this book because it's going to, you know, mess with me. Mm. Like I'm going to sit there and go, no, I demand you read it. Like it's the whole point of media and films and books and arts and anything we create is that you choose how to engage with it, whether that's reading it or not reading it, whether it's, or if it's got a trigger warning, I'll maybe read it in a few months when I feel better because I know what it's about. You know, do you know what I mean? Like, it's just, it's all about just creating your own boundaries 
based on what makes you comfortable and makes you feel safe, I guess. And I'm totally okay with that. And I don't, I've never understood that, that school of thought where like, you're a pussy if you can't engage with this. If you don't watch Wolf Creek 20 times a day, then you're not a real horror fan. Like it's such a, oh, I don't know. such a Bro, bro wanky, horror. Yeah, there's nothing It's worse. such a wanky way of looking, yeah. looking at a very complex genre. And it's, it's an incredibly complex genre. And again, yeah. a lot of people ignore the origins of kind of where horror writing came from as well, which, which was to deal with kind of social themes and injustices and, and mm. intricate kind of concepts. So, like you, you have to do what's good for your own head. But the problem is, is that it often takes us many years to figure out what's good for our own brains because yeah. we're not equipped with those skills from childhood. The, the example I always use is that, is that boys are encouraged to never cry as kids and girls from a young age are sort of told to not have uh, emotional outbursts and to behave in a ladylike fashion. When you grow up with that shit, you can't identify why you feel bad about something then of course you're going to struggle to do that later on in life. Whereas hopefully, like I'm, I'm trying to teach my kid to kind of just be very verbose about how he feels and and his own emotions. And it's all right to be scared. It's all right to be sad because you can identify then when you're scared and when you're sad and it doesn't come back and bite you as a 26-year-old angry man that punches somebody in a garret. Do you know what I mean? It's like it's absolutely fine and sane and normal and healthy to establish your own comfort boundaries and people that don't do that I don't think grasp how much easier their lives could be if they did do that you know it's it's doing the work on yourself a little bit which isn't a very trendy thing to do perhaps I don't know well this is why I'm taking a break at the end of this year I've decided like I, I've read basically two horror books a week for two Oof. years um and it's got to point now where like reading is a, a is a oppression or a joy so i'm going to basically take six weeks off read some lovely yep. stuff about elves on a quest and then there we go i'm gonna come back and, and and kick off next year um we talked a lot about me and i don't i don't want to take this too far from you as a subject i'm very boring though <laughs> you're very very much not one of i mean we're going long are you okay going long this feels like a kind of a special edition so i have no with plans amazing you to go back right to start to the the, the forward of, of your book, you you admit that you had to think sort of long and hard about mm. publishing and you know exposing yourself in this way. Yeah. And you've just mentioned you know your your child and and mm. expectations that people put on kids and things like that. And did you have to consider your family? when you mm. were thinking of releasing mm. this book because you know it isn't just a contract between you and the reader in this case is it it's with a book this personal it's a contract between everyone involved in your life yeah yeah so this was stupidly something I hadn't even thought about which is crazy right because it's not a story that just involves me it involves my son it involves my husband it was not something I'd even thought about until the um, ARC version of the book was sitting in my husband's hands and he was reading it when we were on holiday. I was sitting on the beach and he's reading this book and every now and then he looks over at me and I'm looking back and my husband reads all my books and he's quite, um, uh, he'll always give very honest feedback. It's, it's helpful feedback, but it's always like exactly what he thinks. Mm -hmm. And he put it down at the end and, and he was like, that was hard to read. And I was like, yeah. And he said, I think it's the best thing you've ever written. And I was like, okay. And he said, but I think perhaps we should have had a conversation about it first before you decided to publish it. And I was like, do you know what? That's actually extremely valid because as I've become to realize 
I, you, everybody has a right to talk about their own experiences and that's absolutely how it should be. Um, but also there is a piece of work perhaps you need to do about considering whether or not those experiences truly only belong to you, whether they might belong to other people as well. And the reason I was thinking about this is because there was uh, a big hoo-ha about a short story a while ago, which I'm sure everybody's heard of, which was, uh, is it Cat Lady? Or Cat Lady, yeah, yeah. Cat Lady, which I read the short story and I thought it was very good. Uh, a bit, bit kind of bleak, but like good, right? And then I read the story of the story the fallout (laughs) the fallout of it and the fallout of it for anybody that doesn't know is this woman writes this uh kind of funny witty but slightly like depressing story about her dating experiences um with a man in particular who um you know he's he's obviously got a lot going on and the relationship between them didn't really sort of go anywhere um but she's sort of gently or not really gently, she kind of mocks him throughout that story. When you read the story, you sort of think quite rightly so. But the actuality of that story is that the author wrote it based on a conversation she had with somebody. And it was based on a real relationship between a real couple who who were no longer together. And the woman who was in the original relationship read this short story, and, and it was obviously a big shock to her because that was her story and it had been fictionalized kind of without her knowledge and I guess without her consent. Um, and the, the, the further kind of, I guess, tragedy of that whole scenario was that he was no longer alive and she felt like he had been very misrepresented. That started, I, I, I can't speak to those people. I don't know those people. I can't speak to kind of whether or not that story should have been written like but what I can speak to is a general feeling of discomfort that somebody else's story hadn't been told in the right way mm-hmm. and and I think it, that really came home to me when I realized my husband was sitting there reading a book which was essentially about us I mean luckily he's sort of the good good guy in the book um but it, it's you know it's our lives um and similarly my son is going to get to an age at some point where he might read it before he does. I'm going to have to sit down and have a very long conversation with him and explain what is and isn't real in that novel, Mm -hmm. because it could potentially do some damage if, if it isn't prefaced properly. um, And if he isn't prepared for it emotionally, because the last thing I, I want to do is to imbue him with any sense of guilt because none of the things that happened to us as a family were his fault. He was a baby. He was a child. But the act of having a baby made me quite unwell. And sometimes children in particular, no matter what age they are, they take that upon themselves. Um, so, yeah, there's, there was a real dilemma for me that, that, that stupidly wasn't really pointed out until it was a bit late. Um, it has definitely made me think much, much more carefully about those kind of stories and that kind of writing going forward, even if it's just to sit down with anyone else who might be involved and say, look, perhaps I should talk to you about this. I'd like to write this and explore it. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Um, I guess it's like consent, you know, it's like publishing a photograph of somebody with without their consent. If they're in that picture, that picture doesn't that kind of belong to them. I don't know. Um, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because I, mm-hmm. I'm a staunch believer that a writer has the, you know the right to to 
tell any story as long as they do mm. it do do justice to it and do it with respect and and with the the cat person or whatever it's called um mm. i was completely behind the 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 times on that one i had no idea what had gone on what was about and my reaction was just kind of like well what do people expect you tell something to a writer it's going to become mm. regurgitated in some way i suppose I, I don't even think it was told directly to her, though. I have a feeling it was a friend of a friend. Right. So it was almost like a Chinese whispers situation in in the sense that actually that was actually quite a complex relationship between mm-hmm. that couple of people where he wasn't portrayed in the best light. And now he's not really allowed kind of around to defend himself. So it's just something to be aware of. You know, stories maybe don't always belong to us, although we have a right to tell stories. Right. Everybody has a, has a voice and a right as a creator. But there are there are multiple examples of movies where stories have been appropriated in in the kind of wrong way. I mean, you only have to look at kind of issues around race and identity and mm. culture. It's like it, it's all intertwined. It's all intertwined. And I think with anything I try and do in life in general, I try wherever possible to just not cause harm. You can't. It's unrealistic to think you'll go through life without doing that um by by mistake or otherwise but wherever humanly possible i try not to cause harm or pain or upset which is why i have the trigger warnings which is why i have these kind of deep long prologues and explanations around my work which a lot of people i roll at and i don't give a shit you can i roll all you fucking like because i'm not going to stop doing it but it's like we live in a world where things are hard enough already yeah. Horror horror writers, some of them can be quite unforgiving and deal with material in a way that I don't personally agree with. But for me, I think it's entirely possible to write about nasty things and monsters and ghoulies and ghosts and blood and gore and guts and, and mental health issues and all the rest of it with a kind of underlying sense of compassion, if at all possible. Mm. Um, and and King, King did that in some of his early books. Um, is it Rose Madder deals with... Uh, abuse um you know Laura's Claiborne and Gerald's game is about child abuse and I mean I I kind of struggle with some of the nastiness in that but the 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 core way in which it's written you can kind of see that there is a a drive to to write it for the right reasons you can always tell when somebody's I've said this on panels you can always tell when somebody's writing something for the wrong reasons it comes out it just comes out in your work you can just tell yeah um with trigger warnings, I have become a complete convert and not just because I benefit from them sometimes. Um, basically, over the last two years, I think I've just gone on a whole journey about <laughs> of empathy entirely due yeah. to this podcast. Because, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm getting in the weeds here, but it, it I, well, it's dawned on me, for example, that, you know, when I spoke to your friend V Castro, right, it, mm. it dawned on me for the first time that I don't think I've ever had a genuine in-depth conversation with someone of Latino, Latinx heritage, you know, like, and that never occurred to me because I I live in a tiny town in the north of England. I went to Durham University, which is basically, you know, Mm. white people central. And Mm -hmm. I'd I'd never had anything but a tourist conversation with someone from, from, from Violet's culture. And that's just one example. And I've just met so many more people through Mm. this podcast who are actually uh, and and the format of this is to actually engage with those topics Um, and it's made me think about trigger warnings totally differently because I was very much of that ignorant kind of stance of it's a horror book what do you expect 
and I've totally come across. I mean, I've developed a real issue with the stance taken by certain guests who've been on this podcast. Mm. I mean, I won't mention names, but any long-term listeners, I think, will work out what I mean, where it's so provocative that horror is there to upset you if it's not upsetting you and it's not done right. And almost if it's if you're not willing to be upset, you're almost not allowed to pick this book up. I think horror should be a inclusive thing. It, it should be think, something that's written as a communal experience, not not to... When I say not to provoke, that's probably too far because it's a provocative genre, but but not to provoke harm, I suppose. I think the, the question of harm for me is the central one. Um, mm. And I can't speak to you know other people's attitudes. Like what I will say is other people's attitudes to trigger warnings may or may not be utterly valid to them. And it's mm. a personal, it's books are highly personal experiences, right? Fiction is extremely personal to mm. anybody that consumes it or writes it, or creates it, or whatever. But taking other people's opinions aside, it almost doesn't, for me personally, it almost doesn't matter what anyone else thinks, because I know what my own truth is. And my own truth is that I feel deeply uncomfortable if somebody who struggles with suicidal ideation reads a story, a protracted novel about a woman who struggles with suicide, and is then triggered. And through the act of being triggered, then maybe harms themselves. I feel having been in that situation, almost like personally responsible for not, for, an, you know, I don't want that to happen to anybody. Yeah. Um, and then some, so some people might say, well, why don't you go and write about fluffy kittens and shit like that? And it's like, well, no, because these stories still need to be told. You know, like I felt driven to tell this story because, because the taboo surrounding the subject is so thick and strong. And because often you have a baby and you don't feel able to communicate any of these things that you're thinking because you're terrified of yourself like I'm never going to stop writing about this stuff but I am going to try and do it in a way that is helpful rather than harmful because I have no interest in exploiting postnatal trauma in order to mm. write a book like it just doesn't interest me at all yeah um, I, I imagine in my journey as a writer some of my earlier stuff I probably have done that thing of going oh that's a cool concept and I've written about it without really thinking about it but it's exactly what you just said so um talking to V right getting to know V over the last couple of years she's probably one of my closest friends I see how much her heritage impacts her life in both good and negative ways and I see everyday examples of casual racism. Um, I see how much harder she has had to work than me um, as a kind of privileged white woman in order to get to where she is today. I had absolutely no awareness of any of this before I met V and began to talk to her. Um, and we shared our experiences and, and she's become a kind of firm, staunch friend and ally. And we are for each other, I hope. But in the same way that the panellist kind of scoffing at, at the discourse around trigger warnings then went a little bit quiet when I said, well, actually, sometimes if they're not put in, I might jump off a bridge. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like yeah. Yeah. nobody in their right mind would actually sit there and think, oh, OK, that's brilliant. You know, this is what fiction is all about. It's like, no, it isn't. And so there are certain caveats we can make, I think, perhaps for books that were written a while ago mm. um, before this kind of discourse became 
more common. We can and we can't. Like I, I, I'm, I've never read um, Ketchum's The Girl Next Door, and I, by all accounts, it's an absolutely brilliant novel. Because it's based on a true story, I'm not sure how and when I feel comfortable engaging with that. And I also yeah. don't know how that's dealt with for a new reader. Are they going to kind of just come across it and plunge into it without knowledge? I don't know anything about it, so I can't speak to that. But I, mm-hmm. I suspect I might find it troubling. Um, but that's just me. That's just me personally. And it's like we can't we can't police what people should do and what people should say. And this is the standard for everything. But for me personally, I am going to choose to continue to inform people about what they read before they read it to the very best of my ability. If it, particularly if it deals with rape, abuse, harm to a child, postnatal stuff, suicide, any of that, right? I just feel like, isn't it the nicest thing? Like what I don't understand as well is that if you turn on any movie, there's an age rating and there's a content warning. If you listen to any podcast worth its salt these days, there is a detailed list in the show notes of trigger warnings um, and resources. And it's like, books are a little bit behind in that sense. Mm. Like publishing in general is quite an old fashioned thing anyway. People's mentalities can be quite old fashioned. I just don't get like why it's such a thing. Like it doesn't hurt you to include it. If you don't include it, Mm. it also doesn't hurt you if somebody else does. It's not infringing on your freedom of speech if I write a little forward saying, please be mindful of this if you're suicidally kind of, you know, oriented. Like, it doesn't hurt you. I think there's a lot of people out there who misunderstand and think you're basically giving plot points away. And those people can be, you know, told that they're wrong. I think the problems are the people who think that horror is by necessity a kind of macho endurance test and that if you can't it's such take a, it's it, a, I just you know. jump in as well it's such a wanky lame excuse as well like movie trailers right yeah. everybody saw the movie trailer for nope did that stop people going and seeing it and actually realizing what the movie is about of course it fucking didn't like, it's just uh there's books have got copy on the back about what the book is actually about. Yeah. It's got often got detailed synopses on the jackets. Like the yeah. idea that a trigger warning will interfere with your experience of a book because it gives away the content. To me, it, that's such a lame excuse. Like it just feels like that's it's just if it's down to personal choice and personal preference and personal taste, that's fine. That's one thing. But just own it rather than saying, oh no, you I found out that there's some strong themes in this book that might harm my experience of reading it if I didn't know about them before. <laughs> it yeah. just seems like a very illogical argument to me. Completely. And well, I mean, th- that brings us a little clumsily because I haven't got a great segue to an article I read of yours um, in Horrified magazine called The Female Experience of Fear. Mm. Um, and I actually found that because I was I was writing a thing a while back about... Um, Sarah Everard and mm-hmm. slasher fiction and how we we need I, in my opinion we, we need to start thinking a little bit more about how mm-hmm. slashers operate not censoring them but you know th- they need to acknowledge certain things in my opinion anyway that's all aside it's a great piece it's an absolutely fantastic article um and I just want to talk about it a little bit before we go because there's this quote in it that I pulled out it's, it's almost a quote within a quote um, and you mm. You say, you know, that women's existences are more filled with fear because the bodies we are born in. And then you quote Margaret Atwood, who said, 
men are afraid women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. And quite aside, today we've talked a lot about the psychological impact of, you know, postpartum, which is its own version of a unique female experience of fear. Do you feel strongly about embedding that more violent female fear in your stories? Because I've read Dear Laura and mm. it feels like you were taking this on even then, this very, very unique sense of that the register of terror for women is different. I think I have been on my own personal journey. So the first thing I'll say as well is uh, I don't, I don't, I'm very mindful of what my definition is these days of female and of woman. And I, and, and that for me encompasses a lot of my friends and, you know, you know, it's, it's something I struggle with on this podcast because I I too casually gloss over these terms. Right, it's 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 still a journey for me. I'm still learning the best way to phrase things because I have a lot of women and a lot of female identifying people in my life mm-hmm. who I don't want in any way, shape, or form to feel excluded by any of the things that I write or talk about. That being said, my journey personally that I've been on. I guess has been a bit of a feminist one. And I say that as somebody in her 20s who used to go, oh, feminism is a load of bullshit. You know, we don't need that. It's just angry people, you know. And actually, it was just something you say at the time without fully really understanding what the, what feminism actually is. Um, and it's the notion of equality. And I have to say that it's because as I've grown as a person and I guess as I've been through experiences relating to motherhood, as I've been through my career, as I've had experience as a a writer in this genre, and I've been to conventions, and I'm slowly developing a sense of why feminism and equality is important. For any listeners who aren't in the UK, the whole period of time where there was a young lady called Sarah Everard who was abducted from the streets as she was walking home late at night and murdered by a policeman, there was another lady where it happened about a week later. Um, there is, on an almost monthly basis, there is some news report surrounding violence towards women, mm-hmm. which seems to be kind of escalating or perhaps we're reporting on it more or whatever. I've been also mugged myself um, and attacked, which is, so the whole period of time where the Sarah Everard case was in the news was really challenging to me personally mm-hmm. because i often feel afraid my wife too exactly the same yeah yeah i feel afraid in situations where my friends some of my friends wouldn't so uh and a really good example of this is i was staying in a hotel one night to sometimes if i'm really struggling with finishing a book and i've got a bit of money i'll book a hotel room on the day so that it's a super cheap last minute rate and i'll go there and i'll leave the house and a change of scene and i'll just finish writing um because it's just it helps, right? Mm-hmm. And I did this for for White Pines. I think I was in the final stages of White Pines, and um, I posted a picture just of the bathtub in the bathroom because I was really enamoured with the bathtub, right? And one of my male friends jumped on the Instagram post and was like, "Oh, I know where that is. This hotel is in this part of the city, in this type." type. And I was like, "Oh my god." Um, and I had to ask him to delete the comment and he was like why and I was like well because now if somebody knows where I am they could turn up at my door it wouldn't take much to figure out what hotel that was you know Um, and he's like well that's ridiculous but it isn't ridiculous like there are so many things I have to think about 
like I, I read an article where a guy said when he was feeling uninspired, he went out for a midnight jog and it helped to shake loose ideas. I was like, well, that's amazing for you, mate, but that's not an option for me, not living where I live. Yeah. Um, there are so many instances of casual sexism and bodily related inequality that have come into my life that I've become much more aware of and been less dismissive of that there will probably never be a point at which I explore that through fiction. Um, I I suspect it's something we talk about Margaret Atwood a lot. It's something that's dominated large parts of her work throughout her body of literature, you know, um, the, I, the unique idea, what I would say is that there is a unique sense of fear inherent, perhaps if you're black or if you're trans or, you know, there are many, many instances where fear is unique to a group of people or a, a, you know, a marginalized group of people. Um, There is a kind of type of fear that's unique to men as well. There is a male sense of fear, which is very, very different. And that quote from Margaret Atwood in the article, I sort of explained that the the general quote that um, women are, uh, men are afraid that women will laugh at them whereas women are afraid that men will kill them, is taken slightly out of context because she was interviewing a group of students. Margaret Atwood was interviewing a group of students and the actual quotes were were much more kind of detailed. Yeah. Um, and they were specifically in relation to, she wanted to know why men were afraid of certain things when physically they were superior to women in her mind. Why would you be afraid if you're the faster runner, you're the stronger yeah. person, you know? Um, and so that's where that discourse came from. And it's slightly more complex than than what the reductionist quote has led it to be. But the point of that is, it can be quite scary being in this body sometimes. You are smaller and weaker. Um, you, you are subject to the wrong attention. Um, even just subtle things, like when I worked in a job, I would walk up the stairs and the, the manager behind me would put his hand on my waist, just very casually as I walked up the stairs to the meeting room. I didn't do that to any of the male colleagues, you know, like it's, I'm not saying those things don't happen to men because we all know they do, but there are many of my male friends who don't experience the same basic level of kind of day-to-day fear that I, I, maybe it's me, maybe it's a personal thing. Maybe my anxiety and my mental health issues play into it more than other women. Perhaps other women don't feel like that. Good. I'm happy and I'm glad that they don't because increasingly I'm struggling with not just being afraid with feeling like I have a valid seat at the table in the horror genre, you know, consistently being told that somebody won't read my books because I'm a woman or that they will read my books, but they'll read it in February, which is women in horror month, which I've actually, somebody, three or four people have told me, Oh, I'm saving your book for women in horror month. And whilst on the surface of it, that's brilliant. Great. Love it. Like there's 11 months of the rest of the year that you can read my work in. You know, don't read me because I'm a woman. Read me because I'm a writer that, you know, like it's such a complex thing. Yeah, I get that. My attitude towards it is developing all the time. But increasingly, it feels like an unsafe world for women to operate within. And that that relates to bodily autonomy as well, you know, as we've seen with Roe versus Wade. And things I have to think about that perhaps I didn't think about as a teenager. Well, um, you and me, to, to jump in, I, I 
feel a bit uncomfortable how often I bring up Sarah Everard on this podcast because right. there's something a bit icky about a guy with a podcast constantly kind of like leveraging this awful murder um, right. to ask a question. But it's because a couple of things. One, uh, yeah, listeners, sorry, I, I, I will not continue to repeat myself on this issue. But on, on the one hand, it was such a wake up call for me who is, you know, I'm quite a I consider myself quite a socially aware, progressive person. And it was it was a pivotal thing where I realized that the game was different for men and women. Things my wife said, you know, so it, it really kind of opened my eyes in ways that should have happened decades ago, but it, it hadn't for whatever reason. Uh, and secondly, because there are so many interviews I do with with predominantly young female identifying horror writers where it's just so relevant, where they, you know, these writers rising often from the margins are really taking on that sense of threat in their fiction in a a way that is escalating to meet the escalation of bad behaviour, if that makes sense. But in itself, that's quite a risky pursuit. And it it opens you up to anger. And and even just a basic example of um, a guy who... uh, I, I was exploring the idea of, again, being a woman in horror. And I said mm-hmm. on Twitter, I think, that I was a bit unsure about it because on the one hand, women need representation, we need support, and we need to consistently push ourselves within the genre. On the other hand, I don't really want to be known as a woman in horror. I just want to be known as a horror writer. Yeah. You know, I want, like my peers are. Um, we don't say men in horror, do we? So, like, I was exploring that um, and how complicated my attitude towards that is and how unsure I am as to where I stand exactly. Uh, But I just feel uncomfortable. And one of the first responses was an angry dude who was like, I think I'd rather drown myself than read any more of your drivel. And it was like, he doesn't even follow me, but he obviously sought out that content to argue with because it's a personal point of anger for him Mm. when a woman explores her own identity or what makes her afraid or what she wants to talk about and what 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 by the simple act of like standing up for yourself and trying to write your own experiences you expose yourself to risk and that's wrong to me in the same way that uh, that racism comes to the fore every time you write a book about something which is centered around race you know it exposes you to risk and this is something that i think some of our colleagues and peers don't get if you've never been under threat you wouldn't understand it intrinsically, you know, and that's what I mean by privilege. And I think that's what people don't understand. They assume privilege is I've got nine cars and I'm wealthy and I, I you know, I've got cufflinks made of diamonds, whatever. That isn't privilege. Like it is a, a sense of it, but privilege is being able to walk around without feeling under threat yeah. for who you are, for what you are, for any part of your identity or day-to-day living experience. And unfortunately, <laughs> quite a lot of us, like have to cross the road um, or walk a different way home that takes you two miles out of your way Mm. or not go certain places at certain times, not dress in a certain way, not say certain things, not write certain things, unless you want to expose yourself to risk. And that feels wrong to me. That feels, and it's, it's also a wrong to say, well, this has always been the way it is. You know, unfortunately that's just life. Fuck that. It shouldn't be life. And we can change that, but it takes time. And education and discussion and discourse and growth and personal growth which is also very scary for some people so yeah I um in answer to kind of the original question of like do I explore 
specific and unique kind of personal fear. Of course I do. Everybody does. But how safe I feel doing that sometimes, I don't know. It's a question. Well, that's a horrifying thing that I had not considered. I'll have to go away and think about that because, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is what I mean. It happens all the time. Just every time I think I understand the perspectives of others, it just kind of something gets... I, I, I'm shown something that, that makes me have to rethink it. But but you're open and receptive to rethinking, and I think that's the key thing. And there are many people who aren't because examining yourself in that sense or examining what you've known to be a truth for most of your life and then redefining it is really scary for some people. And I get that. Yeah. I do get it. It's, it's It must be really hard to live your life 40, 50, 60 years in thinking, oh, well, it's all right to smack a woman on the arse because it's just yeah. jollies, you know, when actually to be told specifically, no, this is abusive. It must be very hard to accept that. But I don't, in a way, I don't really care. Well, no, <laughs> well, that yeah, exactly, make you yeah. right, you know. Indeed. Yeah, I tell <laughs> so, you, I keep yeah. saying this. My, my proudest moment was um, of my father, who's who's he was he's eighty six. My dad, he was forty seven when I was born, um, mm. and during the, the Black Lives Matter tumult around the world, mm. he uh, he was he came out with the, the you know the all lives matter nonsense, mm. and I sat him down. And we taught, and for once he listened, because he never listens, and for once he mm. listened. And he literally, un like, changed, you know, at 86. And I thought, well, if you, mm. if, if he can do that, exactly. you know what I mean? Then I literally, exactly if right. you're 55, get fucked. Um, I mean, I'm from I'm from Bristol. We throw yeah. all our statues of slavers in the harbour. So, like... <laughs> I, I was going to ask, I was going to ask about that. And you know what? Even though we're running late, I'm going to ask because I mm. haven't spoken to anyone from Bristol since that happened. Uh, mm. bit, bit, of, bit of, I mean, this is, what, two years old news now, but bit of context for overseas listeners. During the um, the kind of movement around the world and the unrest in, in the wake of of what happened to George Floyd. Yeah, people in Bristol, which has always been a kind of liberal enclave, decided to rip down a statue of a of a slave trader and chuck it in the harbour. Were you were you there? Did you see it? Were you in any way aware of what was going on? I knew what was going on because uh, I'm very kind of up with like local news and stuff. I wouldn't go anywhere near protests because my anxiety kind mm -hmm. of prohibits me from going near masses of people. Um, I'm also slightly aware that in Bristol, there's also a history of rioting. And what often happens is that a peaceful movement will get a little bit hijacked by a couple of troublemakers and it will go nasty quite quickly. So I'm slightly wary of big protests in Bristol. But that that uh, the statue of Edward Colston, for context, has, has stood in the centre of town for many, many years. Colston was a notable kind of local businessman and invested heavily in a lot of the infrastructure and funded a lot of the schools and, you know, just you know, he was a rich man who made his money through slavery and built a lot of the city. Because of that, his statue stood for a very, very long time. But what I should point out is that there's been a long history of petitions in Bristol yes. to get it either renamed or have an information plaque put on it or have it taken down. Um, and where it was stuck was that this there was some debate over the wording on the information plaque that should go on it to explain that the council didn't think that slavery was a good thing. And it was it was total red tape bureaucracy, as many things in England are. And then, you know, in a very coordinated effort, people just decided we've had enough of this and chucked <laughs> it in the harbour. So now it lives in a museum. I think it's in the, um, 
the M shed. I'm not sure, right. not the M shed. Um, yeah. It's it's in one of the museums on the harbour front, and um, I think it's now been displayed with a lot of context and a lot of information. And you know, Bristol unfortunately was founded on a lot of slavery money, and it's a very big part of the history here but you know everything now the guy's name was colston everything now that related to colston has pretty much been renamed mm. um including one of the pubs which was called the colston arms which for a while was called pubby mcpugface which i really liked <laughs> um but has now been renamed the open arms which i love because that to me is yeah, what we're nice. all about we're quite inclusive and stuff here yeah. but it was fascinating to watch everything unfold i wasn't surprised for a second um like near where i live there is a very independent area with lots of local shops and crafts and tesco's wanted to open a, a store tesco's is a big supermarket chain here and there was a literal riot like that went on for a good couple of days because tesco's opened up in this independent area so it doesn't surprise me um yeah you know there's a long and kind of involved history of protest um, and I, I get that there is a complexity to the, the issue around tearing down historical artifacts. I do understand it's not a cut and dried thing, but but none of us were really that sad about it, though. Yeah, <laughs> that's what I mean. <laughs> at, at the time, it, it did feel like, yeah, I get it. We're not going to tear down, you know, Big Ben because it's probably stained with the blood of millions. But but you know, let's just chuck this one thing in the in the wash, shall we? Let's right. just do that. It doesn't at least. like. I mean, yeah. he's still there. He's just yeah. got a face full of like um, silver spray paint now, I think. But he's still yeah. there in a museum. You can go and see him if you really want to. That I mean, this is the thing, right? Millions of people walk by that statue every day and didn't even fucking notice it. So yeah. <laughs> it's the funniest so thing that silly. came of it, the thing that is so bitterly, brutally hilarious is the fact that all the people who get so up in arms about what happened to a statue literally don't care about what happened to human beings and that's the thing that i can't get my head around how can you be it's 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 ideology yeah but so oblivious because... to the suffering of real human beings and then care about a lump of iron that's what i don't get because i think so with anything what i'm trying to do now is to try and and my husband is a large part of this as well he's very good at sort of saying to me actually this point of view that you've got Gemma, is probably quite biased with anything these days, I always try and see it from both sides of the coin if I can. And mm -hmm. I can see that there are valid concerns around vandalism and ripping things down. And, and you know, I can see where it comes from in a sense. It comes from like, well, this is my city and my heritage and I don't want the history to kind of be written over or, or let's say I don't agree with the idea of a a kind of angry mob of people just destroying something in my city. Like mm. I, I get where the kind of the concerns can come from. And I think we have to be really careful just generally as well to like not ostracize people who have different viewpoints too much if we can help it. Because let's say you've grown, like I said before, let's say you've grown up with the city being in a certain way all of a sudden this enormous change happens and it happens overnight. Of course, that's going to be scary for somebody, right? Like it's, I don't want to sound like some wanky liberal lefty who's like, let's all knit yogurt jackets and hug. <laughs> but at the same time, like I'm trying much more these days to try and see things from different people's perspectives, which is why when I get comments from people that are like, oh, you're a woman writer and you're talking about women's shit. Nah, nah, nah. Like I just, that's fine. You know, that, 
you don't want to read my stuff, I'm not going to be sad about it. I'm not also not going to argue with you online mm -hmm. because there's literally no point. It's a complete and utter waste of my energy. Um, but I also, I get it. It's not your cup of tea. It's not my place to try and persuade you otherwise. I'm a lot less angry these days sometimes. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that to excuse things like violence towards women. Like there is no excuse for some of this, but I just, I'm like that, what we were saying about being compassionate, you know, like I'm trying to encompass as many different viewpoints into my daily life as I can so that I don't react to things as definitively and strongly as I used to because things have nuance and I think that's of often course. gets lost in social media discourse we need more of that don't we because like I always said my standard thing is to say that empathy is only worth anything if it's universal you know there's, right. there's no point if you're only empathizing with people that you think are good people because everyone thinks something for a reason that said <laughs> I, I do limit that when it comes to the current cabinet of the conservative party who I think are evil and do, are not deserving and of don't any get me wrong <laughs> i'm very angry at, at a lot of what's happened here politically yeah. in the last couple of years yeah. um but that is another conversation it is for a different day have we haven't pint. we haven't mentioned books <laughs> in about 25 minutes so to finish no, off sorry <laughs> um let, let's let's finish off with my my standard outro um can you recommend a book and tell us tell us why you've picked that one Sure. Um, it's the only book I've read this year. So <laughs> it's, uh, I'm having a problem reading at the moment. Um, and I have had for a number of years now, I think because I write so many words in a day, my brain's quite burned out. Um, but I did read one on holiday and it's a collection of short stories by Daphne du Maurier, who I have always loved, but I'm really sort of digging into now. And it's uh, Don't Look Now and Other Stories. And Don't Look Now is obviously the classic horror movie that was adapted. I think a lot of people don't realise that Du Maurier wrote as much yeah. horror as she did. She also yeah. wrote The Birds. Yeah. Um, but it's a collection of uh, five short stories. And she obviously led a very privileged life and she travelled a lot as as the kind of wealthy class did in those days. And the stories are set in different parts of Europe, mostly, um, and they are absolutely fascinating there's don't look now which is which is obviously set in venice and it's about a grieving couple um trying to get over the death of their child but it's also sort of about psychics and foreboding and foreshadowing and a murder and that's incredibly well written there's not after midnight um there's other there's another story which is set in jerusalem and it's about a tour party and basically how their experience just unravels um, as they're going on this kind of tour of the, the holy part of the city. And then there's the story which really did a number on me. Or well, there's two, actually. There's a, there's one about um, a painter who becomes obsessed with some underwater archaeology, which is a fascinating story. Mm -hmm. It's actually an allegory for alcoholism. Okay. And then there is the story of the young woman who... Her her father dies in her presence very unexpectedly. And in his last breath, he kind of indicates that he's fallen out with a friend of his a long time ago. So she decides to fix that relationship for his sake. She seeks out the friend. And I don't know whether to spoil it or not, but it really messed with my head. Okay, um, or don't then, because I want to read it. It deals with incest quite heavily. Right. Uh, which I wasn't prepared for. Um, <laughs> but 
But many of her stories do deal with things that I wasn't prepared for. Like another one has got quite a detailed description of a menopausal woman, which in the 60s and 70s, you weren't really supposed to be writing fiction about. No. Um, it's she, she was an astonishing writer. I'm always really you know? surprised that more people don't draw correlations between Du Maurier and Shirley Jackson. Because they feel well, I mean, like it's the very similar the... school of writing, right? It's a very mm. kind of the thing that Maurier, De Maurier does is people. She mm. does relationships between people, and she leverages them to kind of instill fear in a normal situation. And there's a general sense of building unease throughout her stories. With it's, which that's it. it's, also it's, does. yeah, it's the unease. It's the literature of, of unease, and that's what I think. Yeah. They feel like. Um, twins from either side of the Atlantic and, and not enough people I think put them together because it's also yeah. they both wrote in that weird hinterland when no one was really writing what we would now call horror and it was all something slightly adjacent and and that gives an, an, that a generic uneasiness as well that is quite you know unnerving so but also things about the supernatural and they, they kind of weren't really in vogue which is why i mean agatha christie wrote a supernatural novel called the pale horse but that was one of only a limited amount of and she, she'd written another story as well i think mm. but it wasn't really the thing that publishers wanted they wanted crime fiction or they wanted romance or particularly from women writers i think in that that era so i find du maurier's ability to take two people in any given situation and and weave a whole subtle web of intrigue and emotion and uh, she just understood people very very well and that's quite compelling and powerful mm -hmm. for me um so that's the one that i've read recently that's the one i'm going to recommend also influence something that i've just written and sent to my agent um and we'll see where that goes but that's oh. a very de maurier-esque kind of story so Amazing. Right. Well, that, I'll add that uh, collection to the to the show notes, along with I'll stick in the link to your your essay about f the female experience of fear so people can check it out. Last question, Gemma, and I feel like we've probably crisscrossed across this loads already, mm. but what truly scares you? Yeah, I mean, I think we touched on it earlier. I think probably at my core, if we're not talking about floating off into the void of space and dying, which is a legitimate fear of mine, which is ridiculous because the chances of that ever happening to me are quite like minimal. Um, it's the idea of loss of control. Um, I just, anything where I'm not fully in control makes me deeply, deeply anxious to the mm. point where I can barely function. Um, and I think that's, I don't think I need to go in any more detail than that, really. I think we've kind of covered how. Yeah, yeah. Why. Well, yeah. and considering the book you've just unleashed on the world, um, I think that makes makes perfect sense. Um, this has been easily my longest episode. It's like twice the length of a normal one, but it's, I've loved every moment of it. So thank you for spending time with me. We, yeah, thank you so much. I'm going to read Full Immersion. I'm When I'm in a Slightly better set of mind. I'm going to read it. I will message you when I have, because I, I imagine I'll have lots of thoughts. Um, yeah, it's it's out today, guys. Everyone go pick it up, and I hope you fare with it better than I did. But but Gemma and more, <laughs> thank you for talking scared. Thank you. I had a terrible time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, who's still here? Yeah, that was quite the conversation to have. I hope it was as interesting to listen to at your end. 
I could say so much to follow up, but it's been a long, long episode, and even I'm not that self-important, so I'll keep this especially brief. First of all, I'm fine, really. I know I go on a lot about things that mess me up and freak me out, and coming off the back of this, you may have your worries about me, but I'm okay. I'm not perfect, I need work, but I'm learning to take it easier on myself. The old me would have seen full immersion as a challenge, or I'd have thought that not reading it meant giving in to my anxieties in some way, like anxiety was taking something from me. Then my wife pointed out that there's a whole huge part of the population who just don't read or watch horror at all, because it scares them, and that it's fine if something scares me, and that I, I should just not if I don't want to. And thankfully, Gemma was also very kind about that. And I really don't want anyone to think that my not finishing her book is any kind of indictment. The parts that I read were wonderfully written. Nor should you think that it's some bleaker than bleak nightmare endurance test. I think most people will be, well, fully immersed, pun very much intended. Basically, read it and let me know what you think. And if you want to talk about your own experiences, your own mental health and and horror, drop me a line. I may not respond right away and, and please don't see that as any kind of rejection or judgment. It just takes me a while to keep up with correspondence as it grows. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on everything Gemma and I discussed. You can reach me on Twitter and Instagram at TalkScaredPod or email me directly at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. You can also sign up for Talking Scared Patreon. For a few bucks a month, you get at least two bonus episodes and often more. Plus, it's a direct line for conversation with me and other subscribers. I'm also finally finishing off my website to launch next year, and and that will bring other ways to get involved with this show. Speaking of things that are coming... A fair warning that I'm planning to take a short break at the end of this year. Basically, by then it will have been around 120 weeks without a single break. And each episode takes around 20 to 30 hours a week if you factor in reading time and research and writing questions. So in keeping with this episode, I need some time off. (laughs) I need to read something that isn't horror for a change. It will only be for around six weeks and I hope you come back afterwards. Please don't leave me. There is a chance that I could fill some of those weeks with a slightly different style of talking scared. How would you feel about some episodes looking at horror more generally rather than dissecting any one book? I'm thinking of doing a short series of conversations with some of my old academic buddies looking at broader themes like, I don't know, uh, werewolves or... 1890s gothic or the vampire would that be a good way to fill those empty weeks without me having to read a book for every show let me know i'm I'm genuinely interested in your thoughts either way you can rest assured i'll be back next week with clay mcleod chapman who has returned to the show to discuss the psychedelic horror of ghost eaters until then though be good to yourself smile at the sun howl at the moon and always keep in mind that tomorrow is a fresh start. Read good books, and remember, it's good to be scared.